Welcome to the Miller Oddcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Hello and welcome to Miller Oddcast, the Missouri Review podcast where we listen to and discuss the finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. I'm Mark McKee, Managing Editor, and have you ever heard of the internet? It's really something, y'all. Here we are at episode 37, featuring the latest finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize in Prose, Decoys, by Greg November. Originally from Philadelphia, Greg November grew up also in New York and then Connecticut, For the past decade, he's been living and writing in Seattle, after half a decade doing those things in Southern California. If you call him bi-coastal, he'd say you were right. He's a 2021 Jack Straw writer, teaches writing and film at North Seattle College and Highline College, reads submissions for New England Review, and was a finalist for the 2020 Kurt Johnson Prose Award for Fiction. His work has most recently appeared in Boulevard, Carve, Hawaii Pacific Review, Epiphany, and Juked, among other places. He has an MFA from UC Irvine. From his artist notes, Decoys has experienced a few different lifetimes and is one of the oldest stories I have in terms of how long I've been working on it. The original draft was written while I was in college, somewhere in the early 2000s. A later version made it to the workshop table in grad school. It's been as long as 50 pages and has had a few different titles. Characters have emerged then disappeared. The current version, I believe, is the right one. Stick around after the piece to hear me and contest editor Bailey Boyd marvel at the constructive elegance and emotional complexity of this story, and then listen to it again. You will be rewarded. But without further ado, here is Decoys by Greg November. Decoys. When I was eight, my father sat me on his lap, and together we drove a caterpillar D9 through the front door of our house. We rumbled up the steps bashed through the doorway and squinted in the spray of dust and paint reflecting orange light from a sun that had just peaked above the horizon. Then somewhere in the living room my father seemed to have second thoughts. He stopped, wrapped an arm around me so I wouldn't vibrate off the machine, and struggled to get the thing into reverse. For years after, whenever my mother told the story, she'd screw up these details. Have I ever told you about the time Ellis stole a bulldozer and drove it through our home? She said through like we'd tore out the back and into the yard, but having only made it as far as the front room, it was more like he'd driven into our house. But that's not how things started. For a while, our life just sort of simmered. My mother had been a folk singer and then an interior designer, although by the time I was in third grade, she had a part-time job at a local elementary school teaching slow kids how to read. She never called them slow, although I heard my father use the word a time or two. He ran the warehouse for R. Frank Burroughs, a local flooring contractor, although when he was home he spent most of his time in a workroom upstairs painting duck decoys. I was their only kid. We lived in a new and unfinished subdivision called Winding Pines in those open, dry lands east of Saldang, though there were no pine trees anywhere and few trees of any species more lush than the wasted sourwood in our front yard. A thing I used to lay underneath and imagine was a giant sequoia. 
The only completed part of Winding Pines was its circuitry of paved roads, trafficked mostly by industrial machines and the few other residents tempted by early bird discounts. Like my parents, who'd moved in soon after I was born, the summer before a scheduled grand opening that never actually happened. Winding Pines remained in a constant state of semi-completion. Each finished moved-in home flanked by framed skeletons, house halves, and empty lots. Construction machinery ruled the grounds, along with mounds of gravel, dead-end paths, and thousands of orange cones. The whole place had the feel of a never-to-be-finished purgatory. But the roads were glorious, paved smooth, wide, free. For a kid with a bicycle on summer break, it was paradise. From all over came the sounds of slow, perpetual home-building. I rode in the middle of the street, navigating around rumbling excavators, compactors, loaders, and earth movers of all kinds, greeting the operators of these machines with wheelies and breathless hoots in the wind. I pedaled fast for stretches and then coasted, weaving back and forth, circumnavigating the neighborhood's roadways, buzzing by finished and unfinished structures, gravelly lots, occasionally bouncing over curbs and then down dirt paths until dead-ending in some giant machine flanked by orange flags stuck in the ground, and lengths of wood and aluminum stacked beside unmarked, shrink-wrapped skids, covered loosely with canvas tarps. Our house was the only completed building on a street called Hydrangea. All the streets had names like that. Hydrangea, Indigo, Morning Glory, all like that. Hydrangea spun off the main road in a back quadrant of winding pines. The house itself was a 1,200-square-foot split level with a small garage and even smaller yard. Inside is where it simmered. My parents, at least the versions I had access to, were always either coming out of a fight or gearing to enter one. An insistent pall filled our home, a vapor of apprehension and discontent, but I never actually saw my parents fight. There was no yelling, no throwing, no hitting, just that vapor, almost a taste, which some days seemed like it originated from the surrounding business of construction and excavation, other days from deep geologic expanses beneath everything. One day my mother sat on the sofa under an afghan she knit herself, reading one from her collection of books written by long dead people, whose pictures were portraits on the back rather than photographs, while my father tinkered in the kitchen with the garbage disposal. From my spot on the floor I could see his legs protruding from the open space beneath the sink. Everything above his waist was hidden. Suddenly there was a clanging and my father cursed, which was my cue either to leave the room or feign a nap right there on the floor. My mother didn't look up. She quietly turned the page in her book, adjusted under the afghan. My father muttered to himself in the kitchen, and there was the splat of some wet semi-solid hitting the kitchen floor. He cursed again. My mother turned the page of her book, looking briefly into the kitchen, and then to her book again. My father now stood in the living room, his white undershirt splatted with water and orange bits. In a tight fist, he clumped a lump of soggy orange peels. Leanne, did you peel these down the sink again? My mother didn't look up from her book. Hmm? Leanne. He spoke with the same tone he used when he didn't like the way I ate my food at the dinner table or when I'd forgotten to close the front door after coming inside. Treat our home with a little respect, please. That's all I ask. He returned to the kitchen and my mother kept reading, although her face was now flushed and she'd kicked free of the afghan. 
I watched from my spot on the floor with some action figures I'd involved in a wrestling match, the outcome of which I'd lost interest in. That's what it was like. That's the sort of house we lived in. Not violent, not loud. Many others, I guess, have it much worse. On the day my father drove the bulldozer into our front door, I sat alone at the kitchen table eating cereal. I'd become aware of a rumbling sound but ignored it. Things were always rumbling in winding pines. Then the rumbling came closer. Our windows rattled. I went to check what it was. Kneeling on the sofa, I peeled the curtain back. My mother wasn't home. She'd gone to Buellton to visit some old friend. That was another difference between my mother and father. She had many old friends, but my father had none. All his current friends were the husbands of women my mother worked with or knew from somewhere. My mother had a network that stretched back to her childhood the people that lived on her street when she was growing up, others she'd met in high school, college, elsewhere. My father, though he too grew up on a street somewhere and lived in a variety of cities before settling with my mother. If he'd picked up any friends along the way, hadn't carried them with him. So on that day when he sat atop the bulldozer in our front yard, he formed the image of a solitary man. A few neighbors had appeared. They must have seen my father on the bulldozer and something told them a scene was about to unfold. They'd formed a small phalanx in the middle of the street and looked on like at a parade. Two or three were mothers with babies in their arms. The men nudged each other, shrugged their shoulders, gestured at my father and the bulldozer as if trying to guess their weight. I'd thought I was in trouble. The day before, there'd been a party of sorts at our house. Everyone there was someone my mother worked with. My father hadn't invited anyone. He spent the whole evening with his grin pasted to his face that looked like it hurt. The husbands of women from my mother's school asked my father about the house, the neighborhood, and he answered them politely, even cracked a few remarks that made everyone laugh. But as the evening wore on and the gathering grew louder, my father became increasingly protective of the furniture, the carpets, the countertops. He told people to hold their drinks rather than set them down, or to not scuff so much when they walked. It's a new place, he kept repeating to people, although it wasn't any longer. My mother tried to poke fun, but it was no use. He was bumming people out. Clutching their drinks with two hands, standing on the sides of their feet so they wouldn't leave prints in the carpet, at one point he turned his critical gaze on me. Get off the floor. Angry, I picked up my toy, stomped up the stairs, and went straight to my father's workroom. It was a small room with a wide work table on which sat wooden duck decoys, some painted and some not. There were also decoys on the floor, the windowsill, even some gathered together on the floor. On one wall hung a rack of vintage pipes. I plucked a small one from the display and worked a wad of spit in my mouth. I pursed my lips and let the spit drip slowly into the bowl of the pipe. My spit was orange from all the soda I'd been allowed to drink because of the party. I replaced the pipe, loaded as it was, and took another one from the rack. I spit in that one, too, and put it back. I spit in another and another. By the fifth pipe, my spit was no longer orange. By the tenth, it was no longer spit. I moved to the decoys on the floor and unzipped my pants. Each decoy I could reach received a rinsing, as did the carpet, the walls, and the legs of the work table. The room quickly took on the odor of urine, sprayed on wood, soaking into carpet. I was zipping up when I heard the door open. I didn't turn around. I heard the sound of my mother coming up the steps, party sounds behind her but my father shut the workroom door before she appeared, closing the two of us alone inside. 
In the months after my father bulldozed the house, my mother would often ask if I wanted to talk about it. She sent me to a series of therapists and handed me books about dealing with trauma and being an only child. At first, she also joined me at my appointments. Maddie learned to act out from his father, she told the therapist, one after the other. The man was a terrible role model. Until the therapist asked her to leave, which they all did eventually, my mother would fidget next to me, teary, imploring me to confess the psychological abuse I'd endured. Tell them what it was like, always walking on eggshells, the outburst for no reason. Tell them it's not your fault. Tell them it's not you. I stonewalled the therapist, my mother. The books she'd given me kept their perfect spines. After a year of not getting anywhere, I convinced my mother to drop the therapy. By the time I'd reached middle school, we'd left Winding Pines. My mother and I lived in another state, where no one knew about the bulldozing, although still my mother seemed intent on keeping the story alive. Many times on the phone, I'd overhear her recount details, inaccurately at times, as I've said, like the story was her means of asserting her own value to someone else. Of course, that's not how it struck me at the time. Then the only thought that occurred to me was that my mother hated my father. But now I see her retelling of the story as an attempt to keep it foregrounded, where it couldn't surprise anyone or reemerge down the line in some insidious manner. She'd seen my aversion to therapy and so took on that mantle herself, denying the story and our experiences in Winding Pines, a chance to simmer and strengthen, to build up in my amygdala until one day it caused the whole works to seize. Her telling and retelling of the story, even inaccurately, was an act of motherly selflessness and bravery. With my father, it was different. Later, when he was living on his own and I would spend one weekend a month at his place, he'd never speak about what he'd done, as if it were only some typical assortment of circumstances and not his attempting to demolish the house with a stolen bulldozer that led to the dissolution of our family, jealousy, money, that sort of thing. And maybe those elements were there, too, I don't really know. But to take my father at his word, that's all that was there. Had it been up to him, the entire episode would have faded away to nothing. Look how well we're all doing now, he'd say while we watched TV or played Uno at his place. I'm so proud of us for making this work. On the day we bulldozed the house, bright sun washed the yard and made the pavement shimmer. Diesel fumes from the bulldozer's exhaust pumped in the hot air and my teeth hummed from sitting on 40,000 pounds of vibrating iron. Our gathered neighbors pointed and murmured to one another. My father was sweating through his shirt. Don't worry, he shouted over the roaring machine. This will be good for us. You cannot, or more accurately, should not, press together what wants so desperately to rend itself in two. So I never, like some other children of divorce I encountered, dreamed of my parents' reconciliation, nor have I longed for it since. My father blew apart the family and in so doing opened a door of salvation through which my mother carried me. Without his initial action and her subsequent actions, who knows how it all would have turned out. Probably we'd have remained just another unhappy family, crushed by resentment and hostility. Maybe it would have grown violent. I think at some point in those days, my father had a vision of all that might come to pass if the family remained together, all the heartache and injury they would cause one another and me, and he vowed not to let it happen. Another man would have made different decisions, I'm sure, but the man my father was, well, bulldozing was the best idea he had. You get into a thing, Maddie, my father said, sliding the bulldozer into gear. 
And then you're there, and sometimes you have to work to get yourself out. That's one thing my father was until the day he died, a worker. That morning I felt tears emerging and fought them back with all I had. I did not want him to see me cry. Was that the root of dumb masculinity implanted in my child's brain? Maybe. I know that's how some will look at it, and maybe they're right, but I think it's something else too. Believe me when I say I don't hate my father. The bulldozer groaned, shifted, and started to roll slowly across the hard lawn, just missing the lone sourwood. We hit the front steps and sort of tilted back as we came atop them. My father looked on with frightening uncertainty, and as he brought the front-end shovel crashing against the doorframe, splintering wood and causing both of us to close our eyes, throw up our arms for protection, I had the sense that he was no longer in control of the rolling machine, that it may have started out under his direction, but somewhere along the way the bulldozer had asserted itself, gained the upper hand, and now ate our house without regard of its own will. My father and I hung on with all our strength. It was the most terrified I'd ever been, but also, I think, my first memory of true happiness. The clamor of iron and moving parts made speech impossible, and I could not see my father amidst flying shards of our falling-away doorframe, knowing also that he could not see me, and that, blinded this way, we were momentarily suspended in time and inculpable. Hi, and welcome back to the Miller Oddcast. You've just heard... Decoys by Greg November. And this is a story that begins with a brazen introduction. Uh, it's some, it, I love when a story has this kind of in its front pocket. <laughs> you know, the, the narrator and his father, the, the father has set the narrator, of course, on this bulldozer and just driven through the front door of their home. Leading That's to first line. Yeah. <laughs> leading to leading to a narrative, which from my perspective is is a fairly conspicuously uh, common one. A, 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 the the story of the dissolution of a marriage and the involvement of a child within that that dissolution. And I think we were talking before and just kind of chatting about the story that the act that marks the beginning of the story but not the beginning of the problems with the parents mm -hmm. lends itself to a whole set of assumptions that we have and the challenge i think that the writer faces and acquits uh, admirably is to liberate us from those assumptions and to to turn around this kind of event by filling in the context of the, the characters of the parents and by creating the, the story from the perspective of the now grown narrator as a child. And I just thought that there was a lot of things uh, that we'll mention that, that are working very well in concert to have us turn over this event in our mind and by the end of it, which I think it's just a masterful ending to this story as well. And for my money, it, it recalls to me like stories that I love from authors like Tobias Wolf, where there's a, there's just the last line, the last, the last kind of like bit, the ending is so kind of perfectly rendered and it's almost exhilarating in its kind of recognition of 
this act as not one of aggression uh, or purely aggression, but as a kind of catharsis that plays a plays a big role in in leading to something that for these two characters, for the mother and the father, needs to happen in that they uh, they get divorced and dissolve their marriage. Yeah, um, I agree. I realized that my nods were inaudible, but I was nodding along um, because I completely agree. First, first with, gosh, I, I just feel like I can't say it enough about this story. What a great first line. <laughs> so um, that ends in a, in a great final line as well. But uh, yeah, this, I, I love that, that this story gives us so many kind of different shelves on which to sit at different points um, and get different perspectives on, on this situation, you know, as you already said, that this, this running of a bulldozer through a house is initially, the reader is going to assume that as an act of aggression, but then later in the very last part of the story, we're told that it's actually an act of salvation, I think was um, was the phrase and I I you know I just appreciated it being led through the kind of history and these various um, images and situations in order to then as a reader feel like I understood that I understood that um, that labeling there um, it made very it made a lot of sense to me um, and so I think that's what this story is doing so well and I think as you said Mark too it's this story seems like it comes up against some challenges um and then just really so elegantly and gracefully um you know meets those challenges and then we end up with with such an interesting perspective and so um like you were saying you know this situation could be um, a common one that we've heard and so that would probably be a challenge and then the challenge of um, the reader's assumptions because we get that that great first line we're already going to certain places in our mind but um like you've said it really it really makes small work of those challenges which is I think one of the reasons it's easy to listen to um and we we're talking about effortlessness with a different piece um with a different piece on the oddcast and this kind of comes to mind too um how even the form kind of blew me away too um how we keep coming back to the central act but then we also get to zoom out and then come back and zoom out and come back and so all of this just just ends up in this really insightful piece i think about this this one this one family in this one house and this developing community with with only the roads and no houses which feels you know so real like we we see them all the time and yeah, yeah. I want to touch on I want to touch on two things that you said right there um, one is the way that the the initial act keeps coming back and we see it in the in the form of the mother telling the story of that act and getting it wrong. And like, that's something that the narrator is really focused on trying to resist the, how the way she gets the story wrong makes it seem like he drove through the whole house or just destroyed the entire house. Mm -hmm. And for the narrator, that's a, that's a very important point is that they just went through the front door and it, it comes back in ways when the mother is 
um, you know, taking her son to therapists and trying to get him to explore the trauma of that moment and to try to kind of, to tell really, she's, she seems to be trying to get the narrator to tell the story that she would like to tell. And although we could see, you know, this kid's kind of like resistance to kind of talking to therapists as something that's fairly normal or fairly, you know, kind of like, or a defense mechanism, it's also a, an act of self-preservation because he isn't kowtowing to just taking on the mother's story. And it's, it's, it's an important moment for this child, you know, for him as a kid. And there's a sort of resilience in the narrator that holds on to what that means. And the other thing that I'd like to touch on is your mention of the subdivision that's kind of in its genesis, it, its creepy genesis, where very few houses are built or there's, you know, except for early perhaps aspirational kind of homeowners have 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 taken up residence at the in the first places there are neighbors in the story right but the vast portion is is still kind of in construction and the narrator makes special mention of the fact that the roads are perfect so a kid with a bike can just go be around all these giant machines uh constructing everything but that the way that there is about construction, the construction of houses, uh, you know, differently, an element of destruction first. I mean, you have to dig out the ground and, and, and make a foundation, et cetera, et cetera, really lays out, I think, an important parallel to uh, the, the kind of simmering tensions in the marriage. I, I mean, I agree. And I think those those tensions are around for especially I think we see them in the party and we see that the tensions don't don't merely kind of exist between the mother and the father there's different kind of defensive postures that the you know the kid takes up like either pretending to nap or leaving the room if he can tell the fight is about to happen but in this in this moment that they have a party at their house and it becomes increasingly clear, like the difference between the father and his understanding of the house and the mother and her understanding of the social world that she would, she would like to be a part of. And finally, the, the father's protectiveness of the house can only really come out when he's talking to his kid. And this leads us to see, you know, the kid go upstairs to his father's workspace where he makes duck decoys and first spitting and then urinating into the pipes that his father has up there, uh, which is an, which again is, and it's an aggressive act, but it's, it's so, it's so particular and it's so intentional. Uh, and yet it's a kind of confrontation that's done in secret and that the narrator is worried, you know, or could remember his child self being worried that he was going to face retribution for and that retribution just never comes it's a very a very interesting but also this is just a real felt moment yeah and you were you were saying before when we were talking about those decoys and the title of this piece and i think you're bringing up all of all of these helpful 
ways of thinking about that. Um, I mean, of course, even the the party, there's supposed to be no trace that the party ever happened. So no lines on the coffee table, no no depressions in the carpet <laughs> from from folks' feet, um, which of course, you know, mirrors the the immaculate roads. Um, and so of course we're getting we're getting all of these kind of clues about you know these communities and like you're saying the social life but also the the homes and the lives that take place in there and and this feeling of or this sense of you know they should be immaculate and and then that the, the I think the act of aggression here of course is the the child's um and and really very very um you know taking a stand on on those on those decoys right like um you know they're not they're not fooling anyone or something um or or ruining yes. them which i get you know and then and then the actual house gets ruined too and i don't know i i appreciated all of the all of the nuance there and and those little clues that you helped me to to think about from the subdivision to the house to the family to the to the decoys and the pipes upstairs um and i just i think it was sorry oddcast listeners we just got interrupted by life <laughs> i'll edit some of that life away but i'll leave some of it just as a as a monument to the fact that life intrudes even in podcasts but yes, Bailey, you were talking about um, the act of aggression on, on, on the child's part with the, with the decoys. And you said something really interesting to me, which is that they're not fooling anyone. And I've been, it's often something that I do with stories, uh, especially poems and, and, and other things as well, to kind of wonder how somebody lands, how an author lands on a title. And I think that you nailed it. Like that's, that's the thing that, it's the image, it's, it's, a, it's a small detail, relatively speaking, in this story, but it's absolutely connected to the house itself. And the act of aggression is mirrored in the, in the, uh, and the kind of destruction of these, of these things is, is mirrored in the initial destruction that we get. And that's part of what makes the ending of the story such a revelation, I think. Mm. We see <clears throat> that it precipitates you know, a divorce that the narrator, as I've said, knows on some level needs to happen. And he also makes mention of not ever having desired that his, that his parents would work it out, that they would come back together. Uh, that doesn't, that didn't seem viable to him. And, and, you know, in this instance, it definitely doesn't to us, I don't think as well. But it also is, is tied to, for me, one of my favorite lines of the story, which is as they're revving up the bulldozer outside and he's set it, you know, the father has set his son on there with him. You know, a, a small crowd of neighbors is gathered and he turns to them and he says, this will be good for us, which is just such a perfect line leading into the, uh, the fabulousness of the ending in which the narrator recognizes that act where he can't see his father and his father can't see him and there's just noise all around as they're going through the front door and really he uses the word inculpable right 
almost as if this is the, you know, the father has finally found the way to break into what the next stage of this family's life must be, which is the, the changing of how they're arranged as a unit, which is to kind of be split apart. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, you know, cause he's the, the father is the one who wants to keep the house pristine, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting um, to me. It's not the, it's not the mother who wants to keep it pristine, but it is the father. And then it's the father's realization that he has to destroy this mm-hmm. seemingly perfect construction, um, mm-hmm. which I guess if, I guess makes sense because he's creating decoys too. So um, it reveals, I love the characters in this. <laughs> we could talk, I feel like we could talk about the characters um, for for such a long time because even as we're talking about them, I'm realizing more insights into them. And so, um, yeah, cause I was just thinking about, yeah, he's he's creating the decoys and so, but then he's also, you know, wants this house to not show any wear or tear. Um, and, mm-hmm. but then he's actually the one who realizes, who realizes what needs to happen. Um, which, which I do think, I do think is interesting. And then he's the one who wants to forget about it. Whereas the mother mm-hmm. wants to keep bringing it up and, um, you know, hyperbolically, I guess, or maybe not hyperbolically, but um, maybe, in, incorrectly um but in incorrectly in a sense of exaggeration at least driving through the living room no 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 it was just the front door um, well i mean but i don't i don't necessarily think that that we have to i mean the narrator is insistent that about what the story is and i think that that's very useful and important to the to the narrator and to the narrator's character I think what we have with her can be understood on some level as perhaps it's her own truth, but it's also the truth of the larger outcome of this, this moment of driving through because from her, from her perspective, right? It, it must be that this is the act that just that finally kind of like, completely can like served as the staging uh, moment for for the for the divorce and the split up of the family and moving away and having different you know having separate residences and different kinds of custody right mm-hmm. so it's it's funny because we never see the narrator take her to task about getting the story wrong um, as much as he's telling us she's getting the story wrong. And this is, I need to hold on to this story. And one of the suggestions for me is that finally around an event that's just a factual event, people need to, to craft stories around those events that serve to allow them to uh, go on to the next parts of their lives. Right. I agree. Great. I love being agreed with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that this is just a, it's just over from top to bottom. It's a really well wrought story. It's very, it's very fine. in it's kind of rendering of certain moments. It's never, it, it never feels like there are too, there's too much detail. 
or that there's not enough detail. Right. There, it's, I say finely rendered, and I, I guess I'm almost thinking kind of of a, of a painting, but it's just, I just, the, the touch uh, here is so, is so masterful. And, you know, as you have mentioned before, just formally speaking, the way that it begins and ends in the same act and, and the, the way that it fills in certain blanks, but doesn't have to answer every, everything that gets brought up, but leaves us to kind of, kind of complete the story based on our appreciation of the characters that are, that are realized within it. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's also shown or I guess even just by our conversation the it you know the story is also one that you know can be listened to multiple times and talked about from different perspectives and really kind of I don't want to say analyzed but um, thought more deeply about many times over and I think it's one of those stories that you can you can hit play again and oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding more about the mother character now or something like that. And, um, and I think this is a shining example of one of those stories. Yes, it's very rich. And I think the time has come for us to uh, depart the, the soundstage as it were, um, so that you can do just that. So you can hit play again. Thank you for being with us on this edition of the Miller Oddcast. Keep an ear bent. We'll be back soon with more finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. And thanks, Bailey, for hanging out. Thanks, Mark. Bye, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bailey waves at the speaker, and that means that we're clear. See you next time, or rather, hear you next time, or rather, you'll hear us next time. One of those things will surely happen. Talk to you, talk, talk with you, talk to you next time. Yes, talk to you next time. All right. Bye. Thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast 37, featuring Decoys by Greg November. Oddcast 38 is on its way soon, so be alert. Thanks as always to the Missouri Review Contest editor Bailey Boyd and to Patricia Miller for her generous support for the Miller Audio Prize. Just as a reminder, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Subscribe or submit your work today. In addition, we have tons of exhilarating and free creative content to read, listen to, and even watch on our website. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.